Well, if you've been in and out over the summer, you've probably noticed that we've been in this series in the Psalms, which has been a lot of fun. Uh, And I can't believe it's already moving by so quickly. Next week is our last week in the Psalms, then we're going to uh, actually start a series on Genesis. I'm I'm excited about that as well. Um, But over the summer, what we've been doing is looking at the different genres of Psalms. Um, Some scholars say there's anywhere between three and, I mean, some guys and ladies are saying there's like 20 or something, but I say there's about seven, but, but that's just me. Anyhow, we've been looking at different psalms of lament and wisdom psalms and, and psalms of hymns of praise and psalms of contentment. And this evening we're going to look at Psalm 51, which is a penitential psalm. It technically fits under, it's a subcategory of lament, but there's a big difference between Psalm 51 and the penitential psalms and lament psalms. And here's, here's the big difference. A lament psalm deals with circumstances that happen to you. I got hit by a bus. That I didn't bring that on myself. Or, you know, you get, you get sick. Um, you know, things happen to you. That's where lament psalms are generally valid. That's what they're good for. A penitential psalm deals with circumstances we bring on ourselves. Okay? I made a sinful decision and I reaped the consequences and now I'm really sorry about that. Uh, That's a penitential psalm. That's what we're dealing with. A lament psalm deals with the question, God, where are you in the midst of this crisis? Right? That's a lament psalm. A psalm of penitence says, God, where am I in the midst of this crisis? In other words, God, where do I stand with you? in light of my sin. Where do I stand with God? Is that a question you ever ask? That's a question I think that's a universal human type of question. You know, and in some ways, if you if you kind of hang around church a little bit, if you've been going to church for years or heard the gospel over and over, it can be dangerous because we think we get it. We think we understand forgiveness. But you know, the more I get to know myself and the more I talk with people who carry regret and guilt and shame, the more I've come to believe that most of us think forgiveness is great for other people, for other people. But for some reason, we don't fully believe it works for us. God, where do I stand with you in light of my sin? Well, Psalm 51 is an absolute treasure when it comes to dealing with that question. The 16th century commentator, check out this name, Victorinus Stringelius. This is what he wrote about Psalm 51. This psalm is the brightest gem in the whole book. It contains instruction so large and doctrine so precious that the tongue of angels could not do justice of its full development. So, you're stuck with me, not angels. We'll we'll see what we can do tonight. You know, my prayer for us hearing this psalm is that it would become a guide for us, showing us maybe how to approach God, inviting us to be real with our failures, giving us guidance in confession, and reminding us to ask for more than forgiveness. And that's something I think we could all use some help with. So, I'm going to ask you to stand one more time, and I'm going to read Psalm 51. And because, it, you know, you can, re- you can follow along and read it if you like, but you're probably used to reading it a lot. So maybe what you want to do is just let me read it, close your eyes, let it wash over in a new way. 
For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had come into Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin I was conceived. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. In the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Terrify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I'll teach transgressors your ways and the sinful will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I give it. But you're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you won't despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Father, we thank you for this old friend of a psalm. And I pray, Lord, that its familiarity wouldn't be a hindrance to us hearing the good news in it. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you would use my limited words and your unlimited power of Scripture to do something new in us to set us free from sin and death. Help us to hear your voice. Amen. You may be seated. Is there anything you've thought, anything you've done, or anything you've left undone that you just won't let yourself be forgiven for. Can't I see you raising your hand? Okay. Me too. Maybe it was a horrible deed from your past, or maybe it's a reoccurring issue like an addiction or a character flaw that keeps raising its ugly head. I want you to consider this. I think in Psalm 51, we miss the impact because we're so far removed from the story of Psalm 51. When we read about King David in Scripture, what do we normally read? He's a man after God's own heart. He's the most righteous king in Israel's history. He's the sire of the bloodline that Jesus the Christ would come out of, right? 
And just by virtue of these stories being in the Bible, unfortunately, they, they somehow get what I call spiritualized. Like, like they're in a case that you can't touch and they don't seem quite as real because they're in the Bible. But I want us to help us to think about this psalm with fresh eyes and fresh minds today. There's nothing saccharine or spiritualized about Psalm 51. It's gritty. It's desperate. And David, the man who prayed these words, was engaged in some of the most despicable, heinous behavior you can imagine. For our scripture reading, Chris read all of 2 Samuel 11, and that choice was no accident. Most psalms, you see, give us little or no clue about the situation in which they were written. You just get a psalm and you, don't, you can kind of guess what was going on, but you don't really know. But Psalm 51 begins with these words. For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had come into Bathsheba. The superscription that I just read is actually in the Hebrew text. It's not just something that the translators made up. And it's full of puns, actually. For example, the Hebrew verb come into is used twice here in very different ways. Nathan the prophet came in to see David after David had had sexual relations with Bathsheba. It's the same verb there. That should get our attention that this is no Sunday school children's psalm. There's something gritty going on here. It deals with some raw and ugly issues. Now, for those of you semi-familiar with the, with the scripture that Chris read, you know that David sees this woman, Bathsheba, her husband's out to war, he sleeps with her, and we just think, okay, he did that, and then he had Uriah killed, and it's all in this nice, neat package, one chapter in 2 Samuel, and then we kind of move on, we scratch our heads and think that's kind of weird. But I want you to consider how deep David's sin really goes for a moment. We're going to look at that passage one more time. You see, normally kings would go to war with their armies. But we're told that David, on this particular battle campaign, stayed home. While his men are out risking their lives to advance his kingdom, he's back home playing peeping Tom with the lady who lives across the other rooftop. Lust rises in his heart. He calls out for this beautiful woman. And Bathsheba comes over to his house. He sleeps with her. And you know, Hebrew language is very terse. It's, it's short. There's not a lot of adjectives like in current day novels, right? And so we read that. David slept with Bathsheba and then we move on. And it's like, we don't think about the implications. Did you know that as a woman you had very, very few rights in that culture? Especially against a king. A king could look at any woman and say, I'm going to sleep with you, and you really had no recourse. So let's call it what it is. David raped Bathsheba. She couldn't say no. She's married to Uriah, and here this king just comes and takes her. All right, these are details that the original audience would have understood, but you and I being so far removed, we don't necessarily get. So, David has already committed this grievous sin. He takes Bathsheba, who's not his wife, and makes her sleep with him. Then he kicks her out. She goes home. And he comes up with this strategy. I know what I'll do. I'll call her husband back. I'll get him to have dinner with me. I'll get him drunk. He'll go home and sleep with Uriah. So if she gets pregnant, 
no one will know it was me. And she would never rat on me because I'm the king and I could just behead her. So he calls Uriah, right? Has dinner with Uriah. And Uriah is so righteous and such a good guy, he will not go in his soft bed and sleep with his wife while his buddies are out on the battle line. So he sleeps on the hard steps of David's home. And David has to take this up another level now. So he plots to have Uriah killed. He sends him back out to the battle lines. He tells his general, Joab, Hey, what I want you to do is push up against the wall of the city that you're trying to take. Put Uriah in the fiercest part of the battle and then pull everybody back. And he'll get killed. It'll look like a, a battle accident. And we read that part of the scripture and it seems really cut and dry, doesn't it? We're not thinking like warriors and generals though, are we? Maybe if you play sports, you'd think of it this way. Why do so many injuries happen in preseason football? Because guys are out of shape, yes. But because when you go halfway, when you don't go 100%, that's when you get injured most of the time. So if you take a, a bunch of soldiers and you know, you're the general, you know you're not really trying to take this wall. You're just getting your guys up there so you can pull back so one of them gets killed. You're going to lose a lot of people. So David has this plan. Has Joab bring the whole army up and then pull back? And the scripture that Chris read even tells us that several men were killed. So David, in effect, has caused the death of Several men, not just Uriah, because he's the one who initiated this stupid maneuver. <laughs> Are you tracking with me now? So David has raped someone. He's lied about it. He's tried to connive, get somebody drunk so they can cover it up. Then he has somebody killed. And in the, in the meantime, he has more men killed for no good reason. The nature of sin is so insidious that we cannot possibly conceive the effects that our decisions make. David's sin is a horrible example to his country and to his kids. We know that David's sons after him now, they were all unfaithful to their wives. They treated people like trash. Even the wise King Solomon ended up marrying like hundreds and hundreds of wives and getting mixed up in all kinds of evil things. So David, the rapist, adulterer, liar, responsible for the murder of more than one man. Now, I would never, ever suggest that you compare your sin with somebody else's. But the reason I, I bring up this point about David is because I want to point out that there is no person so lost that Jesus' sacrifice won't cover them. David was not a man after God's own heart because he was perfect. David was a man after God's own heart because... Well, let me show you. Notice how David approaches the living God. The first thing he does is appeals to God's character. He appeals to God's character. He calls God gracious. He appeals to his loving kindness. He appeals to God's compassion. David approaches humbly on God's merit, not his own. So you don't see David saying, you know, up until this one, God, I was a pretty good guy. I was doing most of the stuff you were telling me to do. I just messed up this one time. Could you cut me some slack? Isn't that how we usually do it? The defense usually gets character witnesses when they're on the stand. And what the, those character witnesses try to do is they, you know, they say, Wayne, I know Wayne, and Wayne would never jaywalk. He's just not the jaywalking type. I've walked, gone on walks with, with Wayne so many times. It's just so out of character for, Jane, for Wayne to jaywalk. 
You know, and so what, what they're trying to do is build this case that that's out of character. But I like what Dallas Willard says. He says, you know, you don't just find yourself lying once in a while. Like, you can't just lie a few times and then say, but you know, I'm not a liar. I just lie a few times. He says, no, if you tell lies, you are a liar. And if you jaywalk, you're a jaywalker. And if you are a rapist and a murderer, that's what you are. And David understood, understood that at least. And he didn't come in trying to say, you know, God, normally I'm a good guy. I just made this one mistake. He just comes in and says... God, I have no merit on my own. I'm appealing to your compassion. David knows he's got no leg to stand on in his own power. In fact, for the three positive qualities he names about God, graciousness and compassion and righteousness, David lists three negative qualities about himself. He talks about his transgressions and his iniquity and his sin. That's David's confession. David's confession is humble and it is total. The Hebrew word behind our word for transgressions means to step over a forbidden boundary. So it's a, it connotes this disloyalty to a king or to someone in particular. So it's, it's different than just breaking an arbitrary rule, like I sped. You know, I've gotten speeding tickets in the United States, right? And you get a ticket and it's just kind of like, you just pay somebody. You, you send it in in the mail. At least in Canada, when I've only got one ticket there. But when you get a ticket in Canada, it says you owe the crown, like 120 Canadian yen or whatever it is. But... Uh, <laughs> That's a total joke. I went to school there. I can say that. But uh, at least there's a face on it. There's a name, right? So what a transgression is, is David realizes he hasn't just broken some law code or something like that. He has offended and rebelled against his sovereign, the Lord. David mentions his iniquity. And iniquity means perversion of what is right. And this this is the word that's often used to describe our sin nature. It's... um, In verse 5, David admits that he was in sin. He was born with sin when his mother conceived him. And this does not mean that his mother did something wrong or that sex is evil. In fact, the Bible has a really high view of, of sex within the marriage relationship. Just read Song of Songs. What this is referring to is the fact that all people have a bent toward sinfulness. I mean... We struggle with doubt that God really has our best in mind, and so we try and control our own lives, and that's that's sin. And anyone with small kids can attest to this. You know, uh, my first kid was born, Sophia comes out, and I'm thinking, oh, this is she's just perfect, and she peed on me, and I was like, wait, this can't be perfect. But even at a very early age, when kids start to have a little bit of will of their own, their own, they try and test that will, right? And you've heard Stella scream before, and yeah, enough said. And finally, so David's mentions transgression, and he's mentioned iniquity. He mentions his sin, which is to fall short, to miss the mark. In verse 6, he mentions how God requires integrity in the inside person. There's an expectation from God that we would live in right relationship with Him and in right relationship with other people. It's what we were created to be. And when we mistreat others and we don't relate rightly to God, that's sin, it's missing the mark. So David comes to this conclusion that he's transgressed the boundaries of his relationship with God, that he's been sinful from birth, and that he misses the mark of what his own nature knows to be right. He says, God, you are justified when you bring a verdict against me. You're blameless when you judge. David admits his fault. Now here's just a few observations about that, two to be exact. Notice the general subject of David's plea. 
God. God is the one he's addressing this to. It's ultimately God who David has offended. There's this statement that's always kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Against you and you only I have sinned. I always think, you know, he really screwed over Bathsheba and Uriah and a bunch of other families too. This statement does not mean that David hasn't wronged everybody else. But it means that when you wrong someone else, you are wronging someone made in God's image. So you are ultimately, ultimately offending the living God when you sin against someone else. And I think that that's what this is about, is getting to the heart of the matter. It's not saying that David didn't hurt or offend or sin against anyone else. It's the ultimate person you sin against is the living God when you hurt another person. Notice, too, that David is aware of his sin. He focuses on his broken relationship with God, not the consequences of his behavior. Right? That's really key. It's one thing to be sorry for getting caught. That's called self-preservation, selfishness, right? It's another thing to be sorry that you've broken a relationship. And that's where David's at. He's, he's sorry that he's broken his relationship with God. So what does David do? What should we do? Well, David comes humbly before God. He confesses his sin before God. And he asks that he be washed clean. Okay? David knows there's no way for him to atone for his own sin. There's no way for him to make it right. All right? There's nothing we can do to make up for stuff we've done against God. And, you know, I, I say that and you're all nodding or falling asleep. And, and we all know that in our head, right? That you can't make up with good works the stuff we've done wrong. But a lot of us don't live that way. A lot of us think about your motives of why you do certain things. Sometimes it's to buddy up to God. Sometimes when you really examine yourself, it's, it's to do enough right things to at least feel good about yourself. And more and more, I'm trying to learn that if I'm going to feel good about myself, I need to feel good about myself because I'm made in God's image and He loves me. Not because of how I perform or don't perform. And that's not a cop-out. That's not to say, oh, throw it out of the wind, you don't have to do anything. No, we should, we should live great lives in response to God's grace. Not as a, as a, as a means to try and earn something. So David asks God to wash him. And I love that. That word wash is, is lame. And what that Hebrew word means is to purge. The Hebrew word comes from the same root, hata, as sin. It's, it literally means, to wash me in this context means to desin me. He's saying, God, desin me. Blot out the evidence from your records that I did something wrong. He says, purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Do you know what hyssop is used for? It's this plant, and you dip it in the blood of an animal sacrifice, and you would put it on the altar. And that would cover your sin. And the first time we see this hyssop used in the Scripture is in Exodus. It's the story of the Passover, where the Israelites took the blood of lambs, and they used hyssop, and they wiped it over their door frames. And when the angel of death came over that city in Egypt, he passed over the Israelite homes. It was, a, it was an atonement. David knows that connotation, and he draws on it here. He says, wash me with hyssop. What David didn't know is that from his line would be born Jesus the Christ, whose blood 
whose sacrifice would cover our sin for all time. Not every time you do something wrong, you have to do this hyssop thing. But one sacrifice, all sufficient for all people. It's awesome. So David asks for this forgiveness that his sin would be wiped away from God's record as if it never happened. And through Jesus, you and I can have this forgiveness. And forgiveness is a wonderful thing. When we live with guilt and shame, doesn't it just zap the energy out of you? It just takes the momentum out of your life. It does feel like, as the psalmist describes, your bones are broken. Everything's out of joint. Things aren't working right in your life. Forgiveness brings freedom and new relationship. But forgiveness is only the starting point. And David knew this as well. You see, David understood that his problem wasn't sins. His problem was sin. David's problem weren't his sins. It was his sin. His individual sins were symptoms of his sinful nature. He didn't wake up one day and said, Oops, I accidentally raped somebody today and killed her husband. David knew he was ca- if he could do that, he was capable of a whole lot more on any given day. Right? And I think when we look into our own hearts, we realize, you know, if no one was looking and I couldn't get in trouble for anything, I'd probably do a lot more worse things than I do. I think we can all recognize that corruption in our own hearts. And so David goes beyond forgiveness and he asks for a whole new heart. Because he knows, you know, you can forgive me now, God, but I'm probably going to do something nasty again. What I need is a heart transplant. And this is so exciting to me because this is the good news. This is the gospel of this text. I think sometimes Christianity portrays faith as this really lame cycle of sin forgiveness, sin forgiveness and I'm stuck trying to manage my sin and trying to just take care of it and I, I do enough right things and I, and I pray enough and I get God to, to, to make me feel good about myself until I screw up again and this is this lame cycle of back and forth and back and forth and that's no way to live that's no way to live and I know that sometimes we get stuck there don't we the good news is not only Can Jesus forgive us? Not only can we avoid hell or, you know, avoid consequences. It's that we can have absolute new life. See, confession and right relatedness with God is much more than just avoiding consequences. That's what John's Gospel is all about, if you're kind of visiting. We've spent 14 months in John's Gospel prior to the summer, and it's been all about life. That's the good news. It's about joy. It's about having right relationship with God and others by the power of God. David recognizes that he's too corrupted, too sinful to live this new life on his own. So he asks God for help. He says, create in me a new heart. The, the word create is literally bara in Hebrew. It's the same word in Genesis 1 where God bara, he creates the heavens and the earth. Bereshit, bara, Elohim, et hashemayim, va'et ha'aretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
And so David is drawing on this word. He's saying, God, do a miracle. You created the universe with a word, with your voice. You can certainly create a new heart in me. Do a miracle in me. Bara, a new heart in me. Isn't that what you want? I want to be a person after God's own heart. That's what happens when we place our faith in Jesus. We have new life in God. You know, and our hearts are far, are far from perfect. But that new heart begins to give us a taste for the things of God. Suddenly the, the old things start to taste a little worse. And the things of God start to become more and more attractive. We begin to desire the glory of God and the good of others more and more. And this new, with this new freedom comes joy and purpose and responsibility. And to me, that's one of the best, I don't know if it's even a, a, a side effect, but if you want to call it that, the side effect of a purpose, of reason to live. You know, Christian life is just all about getting myself out of some bad place or out of bad circumstances for some future date. Might as well wait till later, right? I mean, this, this is about new life. And the things that we do now with God and for God matter. We become nothing short of what Peter calls priests, reconcilers. We share the good news of Jesus in what we say and what we do so that we can help reconcile people to God. That's the work of a priest. That's what we're called to do. Sin will not separate us from God's love. But by its very definition, it's turning away from God, right? turning away from God. So He's there loving us just the same. Face turned toward us. And when we sin, we're turning our backs on Him. So this is not an issue of God, where are you when I sin? This is an issue of where am I? What is my stance before the living God? And every one of you knows who's begun to follow Jesus. That even though you receive this new heart, you can make choices that go back the other way. We can't earn God's favor through being more religious or doing more good deeds or going to church more. We should be doing those things just out of joy. The point is, what God requires of us is this word penitence, genuine sorrow, a broken heart for having broken God's heart. It's also a brokenness about the brokenness we cause in other people. If you're feeling numb today about this kind of brokenness and it's hard to grasp, you could begin right there. You know, sometimes we read Psalm 51 and, and we say, oh, David did it humbly and he came in as a broken man and so I, I'm going to try and copy that. But sometimes if you're honest with yourself, you realize, you know, I'm really not broken. I've become numb to the specific sin or the specific issue. And maybe we need to start at the end of Psalm 51 and say, God, I pray for a broken heart about what I'm doing. I pray that I would be more upset about the things that I've grown accustomed to. The sin I make excuses for on a regular basis. You know, no matter where you're at, my hope for us is that we'd be able to receive this good news. 
It's dangerous. It's a common message. It's a common word. If you come to church, you hear about forgiveness and grace all the time. But don't let it just go in one ear and out the other. How is it not taking root in your life yet? Ask for God to make it real for you there. David is appealing to God for forgiveness. He's hoping, he's hoping beyond hope that God would provide this. What David could not have known, and what he never lived to see, is that Jesus would be born in order to offer this forgiveness and new eternal life for all who put their faith in him. Friends, we get the privilege of living on that side of Jesus, stuff David never got to see. My word to you today is that there's nothing you've done or could do that Jesus can't forgive. There's no life too twisted that Jesus cannot recreate. And the offer is out. The work of Christ is done. And the question is on us, how we how we'll respond to it. Let me just invite you to respond. Let's pray. Father, for those who have begun our walk with you, our attempt at trusting you, and we've received new hearts, and maybe there's been great periods of joy in our life. Maybe there's areas where we've just become numb. We say, oh, we'll never change in this area. Lord, I pray for uh, the gift of brokenness. I, I pray for the gift of feeling what you feel. Lord, I, I pray that you would give us... Um, love for the things that you love and, and a real distaste, a hatred for the things that you hate. Lord, as we're confronted with those ways that we've broken other people, where we've broken our relationship with you, or where we're simply broken, won't you draw us, Holy Spirit, to come humbly and honestly, not holding back, not fearful. For you are gracious and you are righteous and you are compassionate. Lord, for those who have maybe never tried to trust Jesus for that. Pray that this might be a time. Jesus, that there is nothing outside the scope of your forgiveness and redemption. That your sacrifice of yourself covers all. Help us to believe it, to trust you, and to live new life with new hearts on fire.